0: story that I can't remember if I told it before, but when we first moved here, I decided to go join the Stony Brook Rotary, and I showed up the Rotary, which is a business person's luncheon. um, I showed up in a T-shirt and jeans, and uh, I think I had $5 cash in my pocket, and I just figured I was going to use a debit card or credit card for the lunch, and I realized, oh, man, I'm totally unprepared. I was literally empty-handed and unprepared to be at that Rotary luncheon. And thankfully, one of the Rotary members chased me out the door as I was trying to graciously get out of there and say, I'll come back another time. And um, he did what the Lord does for us a lot of times, and that is he said, I'll pay for your lunch. And so even though I was empty-handed, God delivered me from the embarrassment that I went through at that moment. But that's kind of what we want to talk about this morning. The reality that all of us uh, will be better off on a regular basis if we come to the Lord with a posture that says, Lord, I'm empty-handed, and I need you to fill it, fill my hands. And so with that in mind, I'd like us to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, which is the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, And we're going to look over the the next eight weeks at each of the Beatitudes. So seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed on my iPad here blessed are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be sons of God. blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think we would all agree but we have been in a season where there are lots of circumstances that we are faced with that need answers, but the fact of the matter is we don't know what the answers are for lots of these situations. And we literally, as a result of that, could say that we have come up empty-handed because of the fact that we just don't know what the answer is in any of these situations. And we are facing things today that we've never faced before. In the midst of uh, the pandemic and all of the things that are going on, and so we're going to take these na- next eight weeks and kind of follow this trail that Jesus gives us for us to follow to help us to grow in in strength and gain wisdom in our relationship to Him. I want to read Beatitude number one again, but I want to read it from the message. I want you to listen to it. It says, "You're blessed." or you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With with less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Another way to say this is, how poor are they that think of themselves as rich? And how rich are they that consider themselves poor? As we look at the Beatitudes, I want you to think about The Beatitudes in three different parts, and this is the way we're going to unpack it over the next several weeks. We have to go through the Beatitudes in order. We need to go back and revisit particularly the first three on a regular basis in order to experience a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness and for more of God and to experience practically how that works out in our life. But we can't skip over the starting point. We can't skip over poor in spirit. We can't skip over mourning because our sins are many. We can't skip over becoming meek rather than self-willed and defiant because we don't have the ability to direct our own lives wisely. So that's the root of what we need. The Beatitudes give us the root. Those first three become the root to everything, kind of like a tree beginning to grow. And then what happens as we learn to live in that place, that rootedness that God has us in, As a result of that, there's a shoot that begins to grow, like a new fresh shoot on a tree. And it branches out, and that shoot is the the one that is the fourth beatitude, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God uses the root of seeing our own need to produce the shoot of a deep longing to grow in righteousness. And when the roots of the first three beatitudes are nourished, so we nourish them on a regular basis, Then this desire, our heart begins to change and we begin to desire more of God and it begins to spring up in our life. And so as we look at this as kind of a metaphor, we've got the roots that are producing what we need in our own hearts and our inner life and it produces the shoot of a hunger and a thirsting for more of God. And then what happens is we start bearing fruit. We bear the fruit of a godly life. We learn to live with mercy or forgiveness. We notice there's a purity of our heart. We have less and less desire for sin because of the changes that are happening. And then we're actually able to bring peace and be peacemakers in situations where there's significant conflict. So as we think about this pattern of root, shoot, and fruit, I want to remind us of the fact that we just can't get to the fruit Unless we nourish what's going on in our hearts, we need to follow the order of the beati- beatitudes in order to make progress. If you've ever watched any of those reality shows, the Ninja, Ninja Warrior Challenge, and they're trying to get across this this uh, pool filled with jello or something, and they don't they don't filled with what water? Okay. Well, anyway, sometimes gross water. And, and and they're trying to motivate the the competitor to find a way to get across there without falling in and they're they're the way that they get from one part of the of the track to the other part of the track is to grab rings and they have to grab a hold of one ring and swing and back and forth and then they reach out to grab the next ring and there might be one that's h- higher well it would be silly to think okay I'm just going to do like in the old Super Mario days and be run and jump and I'm going to run as fast as I can and I'm going to jump across the pool and grab the last wing, the last ring. There's no way that that would be possible. That particular competitor would end up failing. And in the same way, what you and I face is if we try to take these beatitudes out of order, we end up on the other side trying to build peace when we're not pure in heart. When we're trying to extend forgiveness, when we haven't even looked at our own lack of forgiveness in our own life. So we look at the beatitude in that order. We look at the root, and we want to see it begin to grow and flourish into fruit in our life. In fact, that's the interesting thing about the word blessed. How many of you have heard that the definition of the word blessed is to be happy? Ever heard that definition? That's sort of correct, but it's actually pretty shallow and incomplete. It is not just, oh boy, I'm just so happy now because I'm poor in spirit. It's, a be- it's better to define the word blessed as flourishing. So if you read it that way, to be, in spo- to be poor in spirit is to flourish in life. Flourishing is the person that's poor in spirit. Flourishing is the person that mourns. To mourn is to flourish in life. To be meek is to flourish in life. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to flourish in life. To be merciful is to flourish in life. To be pure in heart is to flourish in life. To be a peacemaker is to flourish in life. I think you get the idea. If we want to flourish in life, Jesus gave us the formula and the prescription. So let's think about what poor in spirit looks like. And I'll give you what I think is the best way to, defend, defend, to uh, define it. Let me start with what it's not. It's not like a star quarterback, since we're in football season this fits, it's not like a star quarterback who tells the coach, I think you need to send someone else into the game because I don't think I'm worth, worthy of my place in the team and I think you should just pick someone else. Or it's not like us going in for a job interview and in response to the question, why should I give you the job Responding by saying, I don't really know. You know, even though I've got all these things on my resume and all of this experience, I just feel so unworthy. I am so poor in my ability. It's not false modesty that Jesus is talking about. It's poor in spirit in relationship to our connection to God. It means that you recognize your poverty in capital letters, before God it's an attitude toward yourself in which you know and affirm that you have not lived the life to which God has called you and that without him you can't live that life even now you know what the calling is you know what he's asking you to do you know what needs to change in your life and you say I can't do it and I come before God with that attitude and he says that's good And with that attitude of saying, I am unable to do this before him. Now I'm going to give you the kingdom of heaven. A better way to look at this passage is in Isaiah chapter 6, or to look at this concept is in the passage in Isaiah chapter 6, which I'd like to read, where Isaiah is before the Lord. And it says, when King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Or another way of saying it is, I feel so poor. I feel so impoverished in what I have to offer. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. In other words, the kingdom of heaven has come into your life. It's kind of like the proverb that says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Recognize you're impoverished in spirit. You don't really know for sure what to do, but there is an answer, and that is if you trust or you lean fully into him, Poor in spirit means I recognize my understanding is meaningless unless my understanding is filtered through my trust in God. That's different than what the culture says. The culture says trust yourself and doubt God. But as Christians, as believers, we say, I don't trust myself unless I know I'm doing it with God helping me. The irony is the more you experience the blessing of God, sometimes it's harder to remain poor in spirit. And that's why this particular beatitude is like an anchor. It's the one we've got to come back to again and again and say, Lord, where, am I, where is it I'm trying to depend on my own strength to be a leader, to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a mother, a father, to be a believer? Where am I depending on my own strength? Where have I decided that I have all that I need and I can do this pretty well even without you? And we need to let him remind us of those places. The character of those who are poor in spirit is not one that flaunts their gifts. It's not someone that blames their sins on other people. It's not those that are impressed with their own attempts to live a godly life. Thomas Watson a Puritan who wrote his his sermons are about 250 pages on these eight principles or eight Beatitudes. And in there he says, the poor in spirit, when he acts most like a saint, confesses himself the chief of sinners. He blushes more at the defects of his graces than others do at the excess of their sins. Now, don't get stuck there. Because when we talk about Being the chief of sinners, we're not talking about staying there. Because we need to remember, and we're going to get there in just a minute, minute, we need to remember the other part of this beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit is where the blessing of God reigns. It's where we begin to taste heaven. What's the Lord's prayer say? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that happen? It happens to a people that have a posture of being poor in spirit. Now there's another interesting thing to notice, and I encourage you to notice this when you go home today, as you read through the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. The next beatitude says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Future. So the first beatitude sets up the rest of the beatitudes. The first beatitude puts us in a posture of being able to see things from the kingdom of God or heaven's perspective. And then when we see that, then all the other Beatitudes begin to make sense. And then when we come to the last Beatitude that talks about going into persecution, it switches back to present tense because we are experiencing persecution in present tense. And so as we look at these Beatitudes together, we're reminded that God knows the proud from afar, but he lives with the lowly in spirit. When we're poor in spirit, he's always there. And when you find yourself saying, I don't know what it takes to face this situation, God says, I will dwell with you there. I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. When we're faced with brutal circumstances, Jesus' statement promises, when we say, I don't have what it takes in these circumstances, I will be there. When we're faced with relentless temptation, Jesus' statement promises to use the intensity of our struggle against temptation to shatter our pride and make us poor in spirit. And once again, it's there he will meet with us and he will be there. And when you've messed up and then you take the small mess you've made and you make even a larger mess, if you allow your, your, your mess to lead you with greater humility back to Christ, Christ will come closer to you than you ever thought possible. We want to take pride as we run with God, hands full of pebbles. As if we've got our hands full. Look, God, look what I have. It's like a little kid running to their dad and saying, Daddy, Daddy, look what I've got. And you open your hands and all you've got is just a hand, hands full of gravel, peat gravel that are worth nothing. And the Lord says, your hands are full, but what you have your hands full of is worth nothing. So if you'll turn your hands over and empty your hands and come to me empty handed, which is poor in spirit, I'm going to fill your hands with jewels and precious diamonds and gold that represents the kingdom of heaven being manifested in your life. Thomas Watson says, if your hands are full of pebbles, you can't receive the gold that he wants to give you. To be be poor in spirit means, I release my claim for blessing as my right. With that release, my hands are empty-handed And that's where the blessing of God begins. We open our hands and we say, "God, my hands are open to you. I have no reason, I have no reason or claim to make that justifies why you should bless me, other than you do it out of your infinite mercy and love, because you want to, and that's your desire." And there are blessings for empty-handed believers. Let me give you some. Empty-handedness. Will release you from the idea that God owes you. God's your creator, which means He doesn't just owe you, He owns you. And you and I have a duty towards Him. Poor in spirit says, I owe God everything, and I can give Him nothing. God owes me nothing, but He has given me everything. Empty handedness will position you to ask and receive prayer. Thomas Watson says, A poor man is ever begging. And he who is poor in spirit is in much need of prayer. Steph, if you could put up Luke chapter 8, verses 9 through 14, I just want to remind you of the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector and remind you that we need to identify more with the tax collector than the Pharisee. The Pharisee's God says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. But the tax collector with his head hanging in shame says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the posture that Jesus promises will be granted access to the kingdom of heaven. To be empty handed helps us to bear up under affliction. To be empty handed gives us the ability to nourish our love for others. Empty-handedness strengthens us to overcome temptation. Jesus said, pray that you enter not in temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, the flesh is poor in spirit. Empty-handedness releases us from the tyranny of self. I've got to read you this quote from A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer says, Self, whether swaggering or groveling, can never be anything but hateful to God. Boasting is evidence that we are pleased with ourself, belittling belittling that we are disappointed in it. Victorious Christian neither exalts nor downgrades himself. His interests have shifted from self to Christ. What he is or not no longer concerns him. He believes that he's been crucified with Christ and he's not willing either to praise or deprecate such a man. Poor in spirit, Empty-handedness means all that really matters in my life is whether Christ is glorified and exalted. If, if, if things that I'm doing in my life are not bringing honor to him, they don't mean anything anyway. They're wood, hay, and stubble that are going to all burn away when we come before him one day. And empty-handedness will lead us to a place to find Jesus who is all-sufficient. We follow the pattern that he described. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. I don't seek my own glory. And I kind of figure if Jesus can say, I can do nothing on my own, if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me. And empty handedness finally gives us a glimpse of heaven on earth. As we mentioned earlier, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens when we empty our hands of ourselves and we let him fill our hands with himself. We're going to get ready in a few minutes to receive communion for the first time together since we came back together after this COVID, in the midst of this COVID season we're in. And I thought how appropriate it is to receive communion as we look at this first beatitude because at the end of the day, communion reminds us that we have to empty our hands to receive what he's done for us. And so that's what we do this morning is we receive communion and we prepare our hearts to get ready to receive all that he has for us today to nourish us. So I'd like us to take a moment and just in quietness and silence and uh, enjoy Karis playing back there. She's bouncing up and down. But in in our quietness, let's look at our own hearts and get anchored back in that place.